Welcome to Survive and Thrive, where Oklahomans reflect on COVID-19 and racism. Survive and Thrive is a 24-episode podcast series where our team will interview Oklahomans across a diverse spectrum as how to survive and thrive during the twofold crisis of the health and racial pandemics. Oklahomans are no stranger to tragedy. The state's history is checkered with traumas such as the Dust Bowl, Tulsa Race Massacre, Trail of Tears, and the Oklahoma City bombing. Out of those tragedies was born the Oklahoma Standard. Now, as the state once again grapples with hardship, this time with COVID-19 and racial heartache, we will hear from multiple Oklahomans who must once again learn to survive and thrive. We are your hosts, Carolee Langford and Brooklyn Wayland. Today, we are joined by Joseph Haruz, president of the University of Oklahoma. All right. So first, we would just love to hear about your background, your family, your upbringing and that kind of thing. It's a favorite topic of mine. Uh, me uh, and my family. Um, good, good. No, I appreciate it. So uh, I am uh, my father uh, first. Uh, so he was the youngest of nine uh, in a family that was an immigrant family uh, that came to Oklahoma. His, uh, my grandfather, my father's father, uh, was in Lebanon at the age of there's some conflicting stories between nine years old and 11 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, during upheaval uh, in Lebanon during that time period was among many uh, that his family could only afford to put him on a boat um, to come to America. There was family because of the oil and gas sector, uh, because there was uh, work that could be done by those that didn't have formal educations, was, uh, was put on a boat to America, kind of missed the first time, hit Canada. That could happen to anybody. Um, and, um, and then I went back through, uh, left Canada, went back through Ellis Island, um, and, uh, went through the, the, the process that so many Americans have uh, been through in becoming Americans. And at that young age, uh, through family connections, found his way to Oklahoma. And uh, he ended up marrying, having, uh, part of the Lebanese community then was, uh, started off in Eric, Oklahoma. Uh, my dad was born uh, in Erica, Oklahoma, and then wound up in Oklahoma City. And my mom's from Austin, Texas, uh, but we still love her. And uh, they met, and uh, they were married 50, a little over 57 years ago. And wow. so uh, I was born and raised in Oklahoma. I spent six years outside of Oklahoma in the Washington, D.C. area working and going to school. Um, but uh, truly uh, born and raised, my dad was the first of... Uh, and only one in his, of his uh, siblings to go past high school. Uh, they all helped him go to the University of Oklahoma, uh, where he came here. Uh, as you know, so many of our students are. Twenty-two percent of our class now, all these years later, are first-generation students. He was that, and did well, and went on to medical school at OU. And um, we've been the beneficiaries, my sis- my two sisters, and me, of that. And so, I uh, went to OU myself for undergraduate. Uh, went to Georgetown for law school to go verify that OU was the place that it is. It checked out um, and uh, worked on Capitol Hill for a while. So, yeah, that's sort of the basic background. Yeah. So what what brought you back to Oklahoma after being in D.C. for so long? Yeah, you know, it's so funny. I was uh, I love giving advice to students because. I was pre-med through economics with a minor in zoology and changed majors like four times. Got into medical school um, and uh, in November of my senior year of college, so about right now in uh, year two careers, and was going to go to medical school. I'd done an internship in D.C. the summer before. At the last second, took the LSAT just for fun. 
in kind of a challenge with some friends and applied the last second to law school and (laughs) ultimately made the decision the Friday before classes started on Monday for medical school and uh, for law school. Uh, I was going to take a gap year. And yeah. <laughs> I told my parents that, and they were like, yeah, no, you're not <laughs> taking a gap year. Familiar. And uh-huh. so I was like, you're going to make a decision. And so yeah. I was like, all right, and made a snap decision Friday before classes started, uh, wow. the night before, actually. Got a U-Haul at the last second, decided to go to Georgetown, uh, went there, orientation had already started, and had planned to do international law. Mm-hmm. And part of it was I wanted to to sort of go uh, out and see the world and be a part of that. And um, it was fascinating. Went to law school and through the process of discovery, realized that the story that would take up way too much of the time that we have uh, <laughs> decided um, that, you know, if life was about making an impact uh, and was a bit, about being around family, uh, my family was in Oklahoma and I felt like I could make a bigger impact there. Mm-hmm. So had some really attractive job offers outside of the state and um, thought I could make a Uh, bigger difference here and my family was here so I came back home yeah Yeah. what drew you to the University of Oklahoma again after all those years yeah I uh, I was really I I worked on Capitol Hill as legislative director for Mm -hmm. then U.S. Senator Boren came back to practice law for a law firm in Oklahoma City called Crow and Dunleavy was gonna do that and then I received a phone call from uh, then Senator Boren saying uh, two phone calls. One was, should I uh, stay in D.C. or come to OU to be president? And I said very clearly, do not come to OU. Stay in the U.S. Senate. You're third ranking on the Finance Committee. Uh, that's where you belong for our state. He agreed. I, t- I told everyone I knew that that we had had that conversation, that I had given him that sage advice, mm-hmm. and that he was going to follow it. And the next day he announced he was going to come to OU the exact opposite of my advice. Um, And a few months later, he called and said, why don't you help me get things started at OU and be a a chief of staff, a job that became VP for executive affairs. And so I left the law firm after a lengthy 10 months of working um, in a big law firm (laughs) and uh, wound up here and uh, always thought it would be temporary. Had an opportunity to go to the private sector to run a healthcare company that was NASDAQ traded. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did that for a couple of years and realized that I was completely addicted to um, to higher education and yeah, uh, came back and became dean of the law school here. I love that. Yeah. yeah. So you've not only really had to navigate this pandemic for yourself, but also for an entire university of faculty, staff, and students. How has that kind of affected your coping process or challenged you in any way? Yeah, it's been easy. Um, I'm next sure. question. I'm kidding. <laughs> it, has been, it has been so complicated. I I, I've imagine. never yeah. seen, uh, at least in my experiences, I've never had a professional and personal experience like this. Mm-hmm, uh, right. I've um, being a lifelong Oklahoman. I've been, you know, we've been through a lot. We've been through a lot in the last forty-eight hours, right? Oh, As yeah. of this time, oh, yeah. we've been through an ice storm. You know, Dean Kelly and I were just talking about what is what does twenty twenty have next? We're not scared. <laughs> just actually, I'm scared to say that out loud. I do not uh, yeah, want to. Tempt, I, I, we said that right, after we just COVID, take that and back, then we got an ice storm. I respect you a lot, but the pandemic is. You know, the word novel is appropriate both for the nature of the virus, but also the the um, the problems presented 
Mm -hmm. uh, they really are novel. There's no playbook for this. And that's what's made it so complicated. Any playbook that existed was in 1918. Uh, And we don't, I haven't had access. If you have access to it, let me know. I'd love to see it. Um, But there hasn't been one. And so it's made this so difficult that it's a case of first impression, Mm -hmm. that it's novel. And so how you deal with it, how it deals with us is something with which we're not familiar. And so I think that's been the most complicated part is to figure out um, how to deal with it with the stakes as high as they are, right, mm-hmm. with our lives on the line um, and our futures on the line and um, educationally and otherwise. How do you balance those two? And it's been really complicated, but it's been something that I am so proud of the work everyone's done. I, I, a word that I, I, I believe should only be used sparingly uh, is the word hero. That, that's a word that should not be used because you don't want to you know, dilute that word. Uh, but there have been so many heroes at OU in and around the managing of this pandemic, in and around how do we as a university you know, live on? Uh, how do we fulfill our uh, sacred purpose uh, during a pandemic? And it's amazing. I, I you know, people will say, hey, you're doing a great job. And my answer is, look at everybody else. It's it's stunning the, the number of hours people have put in. This has been leadership, not just by those of us that hold fancy titles and have high salaries, but by those that are in entry-level jobs that are putting in 11, 12 hours to do the work it takes to make sure that we're safe and to make sure that we can be together to the maximum extent possible to fulfill the purpose of the university. And so it is about determination, resilience, commitment, passion. Uh, It's all of those things. And uh, it is certainly the most exceptional in its various senses uh, period of time that I've been engaged in professionally. And it's been remarkable and ready for it to end. Uh, But (laughs) what we take out of this, you know, we talk when we spoke about resilience. I mean, this is this is resilience. As I have met with students, it's been fascinating. I think our freshman students, to me, have been really interesting because, you know, I'll ask them repeatedly, you know, how are you, and almost rhetorically, right, sort of, or certainly in a way that, that assumes a certain answer, Well, where I'll, I'll say, you know, sort of with a crinkled forehead, you know, how are you holding up? How are you doing during this year? And, and the response is one of, what's well, all I've known for a freshman year? And mm, yeah. and it's going well. Uh, I'm having a really almost like don't minimize my freshman year. It's my freshman year, and it's it's working. Yeah. Uh, and and then you look at our faculty and our staff and everyone that's contributing, and it really is the picture of resilience. It shows when you have difficult circumstances what you can do when you believe that what you're doing is important, and to do it in a way that is as safe as it can be while not just collapsing in and completely fleeing from it is, uh, to me, you know, I know one of the reasons you have this podcast, and I think it's a lesson that we're learning in real time that hopefully can be transmitted to those that come after us, this lesson of resilience. So I know I can speak from my experiences. This is a high-stress time for college students. We're applying for jobs. We're working. We're trying to keep up with school in the midst of a health pandemic trying to navigate social conversations with all the racial upheaval going on. And we would love to hear just a little bit of like transparency, have a little bit of knowledge about what's going on in this uncertainty. So how are you as a university, as the administration, kind of fostering that transparency and that communication? And in what ways have you failed? 
Yeah, well, so failure is something that um, I'm really good at. Uh, <laughs> it's something that I think that anyone who is in a leadership position had better be uh, good at. And that means that you understand you are going to fail. Uh, and the trick is what you do after you fail. And are you honest about it? And what do you do next to improve upon it? So I, I love uh, the question. And I think it's one that we should be asking all the time. So, um, you know, to me, even pre-pandemic, as we began the strategic plan for the university, this first in at least 20 or 30 years written strategic plan for the university, I, we, we talked about being three things, being bold, uh, being honest, and being clear-eyed. And I think that that, that clear-eyed is, is, includes transparency. That is talking about the risks and the benefits. And so, uh, you know, what have we gotten right? What have we gotten wrong? Uh, I think what we have, have gotten right is we've been honest about uh, nothing is risk-free, and we think that the purpose of the university and how it impacts lives is something worth attempting to continue to do in the safest possible way. And then we've been honest that we don't have magic answers that are perfect. Uh, there was a big movement right before three or four weeks out from when classes were to begin. There was a big movement to say, just simply go online. Uh, and uh, it wasn't a decision point that was easy. It's not one that you looked at and said, that's ridiculous. It's something you had to consider and weigh. Uh, and, and without, obviously, without perfect information, as we looked at it, we we had to reflect on our strategic plan and say, what is it we provide in an education here at OU? And if you had a chance to look at it, and you know, I'll throw in a plug, OU, you know, you can find our strategic plan at ou.edu forward slash lead on. But it it is at the very top level, what's our purpose? And it's we change lives. And underneath it, there are five key uh, pillars that we call them, five key elements to this from which everything else flows. When you look at them, uh, it's it's without a doubt one of those is is excellence as an institution, academic excellence. As you'd guess, one of those is being affordable and accessible. Uh, and as you would guess, you know the third of the five is this idea of you know creating knowledge and creative activity as we do. The other two are creating a, a place of true belonging uh, that I'm sure we'll talk about you know later in this conversation. Um, and, and the second one, the, the final one of this grouping of five, it's ordered second in the five. And that is uh, to prepare our students for a life of meaning and impact and success. How do you do that? And the answer is the more we can be in person, the more we can actually provide that education. And so we thought rather that if, if at all possible, rather than going simply online completely, what we do is try and be in person to the maximum extent that we could in a safe way. And that was a balancing. Uh, there was no precision to that. Uh, but we thought that, that it was, when we look at what is the education that hopefully you all as seniors, graduating seniors, I assume, that's an we important part so. of a senior, to be so. a graduating <laughs> senior, um, that, that we still provided that. We also know, knew that if we went online completely, that a lot of students wouldn't come back. And that out of those students, not only is that, um, a life deferred in terms of the benefits from college, but a lot don't come back and never come back. And that's a tragedy for the individual and, and for society. We looked at it and put a lot of thought into it. There was a big petition circulated around this, demanding we go online. And mm -hmm. so it wasn't an easy decision to make. Uh, we appointed a chief COVID officer, uh, which is a position I never had imagined we would have. Mm -hmm. Someone I speak with every week, uh, hear from almost every day. And we asked the question, and we were lucky to have the Health Sciences Center, can we do this safely? Can it be done in a way that's safe? 
uh, because we, 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 it has to be as safe as possible. And we divine that it could be done safely, but it had to be done in a way that recognized objective con- concerns and subjective concerns, both important. That is, um, what do you do to, to, to stop or mitigate virus transmission? Uh, things like now with plexiglass and masking. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you engage in social distancing in the classroom? How do you do the constellation of things that happen at a university? But how do you also address uh, those individuals that are particularly at risk? And even for those that are not, how do you address the fears that naturally attach to this? And part of that was through flexibility, both for our students, our faculty, and our staff. And this is where some of the hero work came in. Um, this is, you know, part of the ha- how'd you get it right. Uh, of the faculty that wanted to have uh, a separate approach, um, in the first instance, 97% that went through this process were given flexibility. The other 3%, we found a way to meet it. For our staff, you've seen the parking on campus, it's a lot better. There's a lot of staff telecommuting. And we were able to address substantially, well, almost all of those. Some of those we couldn't because they were in areas that were direct. Uh, but, but almost all of those. I think it was like six or seven we couldn't address out of the thousands of employees. Um, and so the idea of, of how do you provide an in-person experience to the maximum extent possible in a way that's safe while also giving flexibility to students and faculty and staff. And that requires a lot of work. And people have worked so hard to get that done. Now, and, and there is, we've invested a lot. Time of people, we you know, spent you know, $8 million. We went online right after, after spring break uh, and immediately re- refunded to students a pro rata amount of housing and food and parking. Uh, we received $9 million in CARES Act funding, but we immediately spent $8 million on that, millions on other things. We changed out all the fixtures on campus in bathrooms to make them touchless, 1100 on this campus, another 1400 at the Health Sciences Center to make them safer. We spent $5 million on additional cleaning measures to take place. We've changed out filter systems for air to get to hospital-grade filters wherever possible. Um, a lot of those things that, that, that obviously the PPE that we ordered, uh, we didn't lay off any full-time faculty and staff from positions, even when there wasn't work to do. That was $12.5 million. And we didn't increase the cost of tuition or fees for the last three years, including this year. So obviously, we've had to cut costs in other areas and be smart about how we spend money, um, but also address this pandemic. So a lot of those things, I think we got right. What, what, have, what have we, uh, you know, what have failures been? There's been a lot of failures. I think the successes have outweighed the failures, but there without a doubt have been those things. Uh, I've learned from interactions with faculty uh, senate on Norman campus and staff senate. We have regular communications with both of them. Uh, they help us re- re-steer and student groups, you know, um, uh, is there not enough communication that's taking place? I've had, you know, the staff senate and the faculty senate say, look, these are the rumors that are out there. These are the fears that are taking place. You need to address, you know, first of all, what's the answer? And then second of all, you're not communicating it well enough because even we don't know what the answer is and we're the leaders. And that's caused us to redouble communication efforts. It's also caused us um, to alter course based upon that input and to adjust um, the direction we're going with matters. Initially, my first thought was there's no way we can go through the complicated effort of engaging an individual flexibility for faculty members. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was dead wrong. Uh, I found out very quickly that uh, it could be done and that our staff could make it happen and that it was worth it. So it's constantly adjusting, which means that you've had areas that weren't as good as they could be, which means that you're failing in certain areas. So mm-hmm. uh, I think our greatest success has been that we are open to understanding and communicating about where we have deficiencies or where information is developing that we should be attuned to. 
Yeah. Or if fears are arising because there's not enough conversation. Mm -hmm. So how are you ensuring or working towards bettering that communication, specifically with students? You've talked a lot about faculty yeah. and senate. So what does it look like when talking about students and having their input be, yeah. be heard? Um, a lot of that is, you know, some of the traditional, well, through a number, through, through student, uh, through objective mechanisms, through student polling and data collection. Mm -hmm. uh, we, right before um, about five weeks, well, I say that, before classes started in the fall, during the summer, as we were thinking about constructing how many should go into the hybridized educational experience, how many should be online versus traditional in-person with the safety measures versus hybridized. Uh, rather than sort of guess what we think students should have, we went out and did polling of students to find out what are their interests, what is it they want in a classroom setting. And it was really telling, and it really focused how we provided instruction about Four weeks ago, so probably just before halfway through the semester, as we were planning out this coming spring semester, we did another survey of our students to find out, um, okay, you've lived through it now for X number of weeks. We have to plan a schedule for the spring uh, semester. Tell us objectively what kind of classes you want and don't want and how we can provide greater. So that's one way of so seeking direct input on the, on the instructional mechanism. Uh, we also do it through student affairs, through um, student governance groups. You had Justin Norris here. We were supposed to be together. Uh, he's an incredible leader, uh, has done in, you know, an incredible job as SGA president, uh, and through our student affairs mechanisms that exist. So it's been a combination of, of, of the objective, anonymous data collection uh, and also the conversations with them and then uh, through our student leaders uh, in communication with them. So you did talk a little bit about kind of what you have been hearing on concerns from faculty, students, and staff. What have you heard? What have you been told? What are their concerns in actually coming to the campus facilities using everything, and what are they concerned about? So the natural concern is, is it safe? Right. I mean, is it safe to come to campus? And for those that are not, um, you know, that don't have the benefit of being young and healthy, uh, those that are at risk and they're young or at risk because they're older and older and at risk and have additional um, issues, you know, potential issues, comorbidities. Um, uh, the question is, is it safe to come to campus? And this is a question I get very usually the first question that I get. And having a chief COVID officer, having a health science center, being able to deal with it in a scientific data-driven way has been incredibly helpful. One of the questions I asked, we had a faculty uh, town hall about four or five weeks ago where I answered questions for an hour and a half. Oh. Um, and a lot of them included this question of safety. What I was able to say then, and I'm able to say now, is that um, by every measure I've seen, our campus is safe for those that are coming here. And I want to get to dorms in just a second, if I could sure, move that yeah. to one side. So let's talk about um, dorms and, and in a minute. And let's talk about everything else right now. Um, everything else right now, we were one of the first to go fully online in the spring. We were ahead of any city in the state for going to mandatory masking. And we were we, we had the luxury of, and we also canceled all in-person instruction for this summer. And that gave us all of spring break, the balance of the, 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 the spring semester, and all of summer to work on how do you make the environment on campus safe. How do you put in place those things? How do you change out classrooms? And how do you change out the fixtures and the, the air filters to hospital grade? How do you do all those things? 
We had the benefit of all of that lead time and the benefit of a, lot, of a lot of expertise. The truth of the matter is, in our classrooms right now, and I teach, I've uh, taught since 97, um, and I teach right now, in the classroom, I asked the question of our chief COVID officer, Dale Bratzler, who, if you haven't had a chance to speak to him, you should. He's incredible. He's like our own Dr. Fauci. Uh, <laughs> and um, I just say he's a taller, more handsome Dr. Fauci, uh, which makes him happy. But you know, the question was, uh, I just said, you know, look, is it, how are we doing so far? Is it safe? This is a few weeks ago and it hasn't changed. And I said, so let's just go by some objective measures. And that is, um, and in, you know, at the Health Sciences Center, we have not just the classes we teach there, but we have a huge, we have the largest physician practice group in the state and our physicians see patients. So the largest one in the state. And I asked the question, in our classrooms at the Health Sciences Center, in our classrooms on Norman campus, with the protocols we have in place, with the masking that you've seen it in the classrooms, the hygiene stations, um, and the distancing that exists there, um, how are we doing? And the answer was, we know of not a single case of transmission in the classroom. And he took it a step further. He said, not only have we not, are we unaware of any case of transmission of the coronavirus, uh, of COVID-19 in our classrooms, on the Health Science Center or on the Norman campus, but in our clinics where we're seeing patients, many of whom obviously, you know, are likely to have um, COVID-19 because right. they have health issues, there's not a single case of transmission from provider, physician or nurse or healthcare provider uh, to patient or patient to provider in that setting. Hmm. Now, we've had a couple of cases of transmission at the Health Science Center in break rooms where people weren't observing masking protocols among employees, but not where the protocols are being followed. And so um, that's a big statement, a very direct statement about is it safe to be in those environments? And so um, we know nothing's perfect. Uh, we know there could be issues, but so far, uh, that's where we stand right now, which is the protections we've taken when they're followed uh, allow for safety. And you've seen it. It's stunning how our students have responded to masking. To masking on campus when you're socially distanced and outside, our students are still wearing masks. And faculty, and there are some exceptions that take place, but it's really the exception. Uh, and so um, that, to me, has been part of what's been led to the success. Now, it's interesting. Dorms present the most unique problem because we know that in your dorm, uh, way back those three years ago, mm -hmm. if you all can recall back that far as seniors, uh, you know, it's when you're in your, you're not going to sleep with the mask on. And so they present uh, a unique set of circumstances. We reduced cat capacity to 86%. We put in 300 individual beds. We put in place protocols for contact tracing and, and isolation uh, and quarantining. Uh, and we required any student before they arrive had to be test negative for coronavirus before they came into the dorms. Uh, we've, we have the free testing that's taken place, and we started a few weeks ago the surveillance testing, uh, where we um, uh, you know, request that whether you are symptomatic or not or feel good or bad, that you go in and take a test. And gotcha. um, we also have wastewater systems to help monitor concentrations. Um, it's gone well so far. We're under no illusion that there couldn't be a problem. Uh, that carries sure. with it a higher risk. Yeah. But, um, but so far... Those have been successful. Our decision to not resume in-person classes after Thanksgiving, we think, is, a, is, is the right measure. As I tell students, we didn't cancel spring break. We just kind of moved it to the beginning of the semester. Not a lot of students buy that statement. But, um, <laughs> you know, we're going to start a week later. We, we, we've, we've canceled spring break. We're going to try and sprinkle in a day 
um, or maybe two of additional break days for our students to give them some break during the semester. But we knew that if they left for spring break, um, that we would have a, a big uptick in terms of uh, infections. Sure. So yeah. um, those are the steps that we've we've taken to try and mitigate. But the congregate housing, the dorms are the ones that we spend a lot of time thinking about, planning around, um, and trying to not just mitigate, but also proactively uh, assess. So last question about um, the coronavirus pandemic, but how are you working with off-campus Greek houses to ensure that they are not being a point of spread for COVID-19? Yeah, it's, it's any congregate housing is going to be, has an enhanced risk. Uh, through Student Affairs, uh, through Dr. Surratt's office, uh, we've been working with those Greek houses to ask that they follow the same protocols uh, that we're following, uh, that before the students come back, uh, that they do the same testing to make sure that they test negative before they come back into the housing. We can't enforce it as closely as we can um, in our own dorms, uh, but it's in the house's self-interest to do this because they wind up with the same problem we would have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, they have agreed to follow the same protocols. We do not have as much control over them, but we do have agreements that they'll follow the same protocols. And the same will be true when we come back for the spring semester. Uh, any student in congregate housing is going to have to go through the same testing protocol to make sure before you can return, you have to test negative. And we've asked and we believe the Greek houses will do the same again. Yeah. So I kind of want to shift focus um, and talk about, we, we've said 2020 has just been quite the year. Um, we've also been dealing with a lot of racial upheaval within yeah. the state and our nation. While the nation has abruptly had to or being forced to grapple with this racial upheaval. The university has dealt with this in the past couple of years in quite a few different instances, whether that be our blackface incidents on campus, um, protests, sit-ins, marches. How has the university been working to ensure that they're handling this situation in in a correct way? Um, And maybe that can offer some kind of light in how our state can handle it as well. Yeah, it's whenever I interviewed for this job, one of the questions I was asked was um, what is, you know, are we in a crisis? And this is a year and a half ago. Uh, And I knew what the person asking the question wanted to hear, Hmm. which was that there was a financial crisis that we had to deal with. And so I knew what the right interview answer was, which as you all as seniors interviewing for jobs know is a temptation just to go with the right answer. Uh, But I, I think it was a correct answer because the financial piece we were already handling uh, something that we've done before. We, I know how to handle it. We know how to handle it. We're going to get through it. Uh, not without some difficulty, right. but it's it, it's not a crisis. We cut operating costs, you know, two years ago by, you know, 48 million Norman campus. Uh, this past year through June, this past June, we cut another 31 million. We'll cut more costs and we'll be more efficient and we'll be fine. Um, and uh, working together. And so my answer was, I know what you want to hear. Uh, that isn't the crisis. Uh, the crisis is around race. Uh, it's around diversity, equity, and inclusion. But let's be specific. It's around race and ethnicity. And it's not uh, just an OU problem. It's a state and national problem. But it's also an OU problem. And when I first took this job, people were like, I bet you hope there's not another racial incident. And I was like, come on. Right, like it happens every day. Um, that's ridiculous. You, you can't act like it doesn't happen every day. 
And so the real question isn't, is it going to happen again? Because it is. It happens. It's happened during the course of this conversation. The question is, are we at OU going to reflect society or are we going to do better? And I love the question because in the question about, you know, can we then be instructive to others? And I think it starts with honesty. And I've stated part of that, which is we've acted no differently. And uh, that's a crisis. Hmm. And so, so what do we do? Uh, and how do we address it? Uh, to, to me, it's a question I think about a lot. And this could be a really good podcast series of like 10 hours. And I could certainly <laughs> fill six of them with my thinking on this. <laughs> but realizing that your audience may have uh, less of an appetite than 10 hours, uh, I'll try and <laughs> truncate it. But I, I do believe it requires a really fulsome discussion. And so let's start with what are you actually going to do about it? And when you look at our strategic plan, we talked about it. You can say a lot of things about what you want to do. But if you don't have a plan, and if you aren't funding the plan, it doesn't make a difference. That's for any enterprise. Yeah, It's just conversation. And so as we developed our strategic plan, we said, okay, how do we change lives? And we developed these five pillars, and we went through them. But one of those was um, to be a place of true belonging for everyone. That's one of the five pillars, one of the five most important things we have to get right. So, so why is that so important? And I think it's important for a few reasons, uh, a couple of which you've already touched on. And let's just start macro-macro, which is um, we live in the oldest continuing democracy in the world, and we're not very old. And democracies fail every day. I was a law school dean for nine years, and uh, I think Dean Kelly's had to listen to a few of these sometimes. Um, but, but democracies are fragile, and the greatest way to kill a democracy is to create division within a country. And what's being done right now is this idea is to make us hate each other for our differences. If you can divide a society that way, you can kill a democracy. Hmm. It really is that simple, and it's relatively easy to do. And both sides of the aisle agree with this. That's the plan to hurt our democracy. Make us hate each other and do it. Best place you can start, very effective, is around race. And all of our students that come here, regardless of the major that our students choose, have one thing in common. Right? They're among the lucky ones that get to go to a research university. And so they're already regarded as leaders by their peers. And so people look to them for answers. And so it's, it's critical that we get diversity, equity, inclusion, that we get race right at OU because it matters to our democracy. It matters to society that fundamentally. Now, and so in our strategic plan, we also think it matters to the individual that they understand this. We think it matters to them in a very practical way, which is to function and be successful in today's society. You have to be able to deal with people that are different than you. You have to be. It's it's an essential skill. Right. It's also a divided society. And so if our students come in here and they think that the other political party, right, the other group, that they have no idea what they think or feel, right? How many of us are guilty of saying, I have no idea what the other political party can... If you do that, then it's going to make us hate each other. You have to learn what they're thinking and feeling, even if you disagree at the end. And you have to learn how to do it, to discuss it in a way that's civil. Otherwise, we break down. So when we think about... How can we prepare our students for our second pillar, a life of meaning and success and impact? And then our fourth pillar, a place of true belonging. Both of those hinge on 
being good and focused around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Both of them require that. And it's also critical for students as they're here to learn to feel like they belong. Not that they're allowed in, not that they qualify to come in, not that they're permitted, right? But do you feel like you really have an attachment to the institution? And we want that for all students because it's the right thing, but it's also if we care about changing lives, students have to feel that way. So how do you get there? And that's a complicated part. What's your plan? And the plan has to be one that really is comprehensive and that takes some risks. And so we put together this 500-page plan for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Wow. And, um, and out of that, we have an executive summary, thank goodness, because 500 pages is a lot. That's I could do 450, but 500 is <laughs> a lot. Um, and so you have this executive summary. The question then became, how do you then take this and insert this into the student experience and the experience of all of us? And there are easy things to do, like crazy idea, why don't we actually do require diversity, equity, and inclusion training for our faculty and staff? Hmm. Right? Not required until this year. Um, our students have been required to do it. We've also talked about what about a mandatory first-year class where all students gain an understanding of the other, uh, learn about the history of race. You all have had conversations about the Tulsa race massacre right. that took place. How many students were taught that in Oklahoma history? None. I wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't either. Same. Yeah. Not taught about the Tulsa race massacre in Oklahoma history. It's not okay. It's foundational knowledge to gain an understanding of what true history is and what others like yourself have experienced, what they what they feel. I had a question today and it was, you know, I get asked questions every day that lack the foundational information to be able to understand our history and, and therefore the experiences of others. Mm -hmm. And so we're, right now we're going to put in place for next year uh, this big experiment, which is a mandatory three-hour class for all of our students, mm -hmm. where we learn together, um, not just in a required training course, but in a very interactive way um, about the other and civil discourse. And so it's having a, a macro plan. It's infusing it into, the, in, into our educational process where all of us can then, through this set of experiences, understand the other and understand how to engage in civil discourse and not hate the other. So there's a much bigger plan. We could cover it in great detail, but it's centered around that proposition. And so when you think about where is OU's strategic plan, you need to look no further than our five key elements, and two of them tie directly to that. Prepare our students for a life of success, meaning, and impact. If you don't know DE&I, you can't do it. You can't. And our fourth pillar, a, trace of, a place of true belonging for all of our students. You can't get there unless you, and I've had, you know, people all the time say, well, I'm, you know, I'm someone on the left. How can I belong here? Right? I'm someone on the right. How can I belong here? And the answer is we've got to create that culture together where we understand each other. You can't pick, right? You have to understand and work together to get there. So that's the idea behind how we do it. And I think that it's through taking this approach in a very focused purposeful way, where every day we measure ourselves against that. We did our first um, assessment of campus climate uh, in the last two weeks. First assessment of campus climate. Hmm. How can you know what you have to change if mm -hmm. you don't know what those feelings are? You can't. You're just guessing at it. And so our, our campus climate survey went out. We're going to come back with critical information that's both directly informative and also a baseline for future surveys to see if we're improving and where we're failing and therefore need to do better. So to me, it's addressed through honesty, clarity, 
some boldness. And, uh, and it's interesting. When you sit down with people, and let's just pick the left and the right. And you sit down and you have... Con- I had one right before I came in here with a member of our state legislature. And when you really break it down and depersonalize it and say, do we agree there's this threat to democracy? Do we agree we shouldn't hate each other? Do we agree we should understand each other? Do we agree we should engage in civil discourse? Do we agree that we should have an understanding of our true histories and how that impacts our experiences and then understand each other? It's a rare person that will say no to that. And that, to me, is the foundation to true DE&I. Because at the end of the day, whatever our political philosophy, almost everyone has a heart that's good. But in a lot of ways, it's being exploited by those that make us want to hate each other, by things that reinforce this idea that only our idea can be right, and that the other person must be less than human. The other person must be so wrong that they deserve not even to be listened to. And, and so hopefully what we have here at OU is through this very clear plan that is not just a plan sitting on a shelf, but a comprehensive plan that's always open to refinement, that is put into the strategic plan of the university, where all of the actions and funding of the university flow through a strategic plan that has diversity, equity, and inclusion plugged into two of those key five elements of it um, that you measure honestly, that you admit to your failures and make correction. Um, that's how I think we become a place that doesn't just reflect society, but because becomes one that helps change it in a positive way. So I feel like you've talked about this and been pretty open with the idea that marginalized communities have not always felt that they had a place at institutions like this one. Um, and we're no exception for that. I feel like you've talked about the strategic plan and how you're working to ensure that students feel included here. But I feel like one of the concerns that we've heard is that a lot of plans that universities and institutions like this one come up with are empty promises. Yeah. How do you go to combat that um, when you do have racist incidents from faculty and students? What actions are you taking to ensure that what your plan is not just empty promises? Yeah. So the, the actions are that you don't just react to a crisis. Uh, whenever I first came in, I wanted to have a big celebration of diversity. And um, I wanted it to be the first thing we did. And I was like, it's time for a big celebration of diversity. We're going to say how important it is. And I had two voices that came to me. One of them was Dr. David Surratt. Um, Dr. Jane Arungu was the other when she was in the interim role of chief diversity officer. And they came to me and they said, you can't celebrate or have a big event until you've done the hard foundational work. Otherwise, it's going to be viewed as illegitimate and it's going to be viewed as being hollow. And I was like, but I really want to have a big celebration. And they were like, you really have to do the hard work first. And so I took their advice. We took a step back and began doing those things that are the hard work, putting in place the real systems and processes for change, putting in on the academic side a new position of an associate provost uh, to be handling diversity, equity, and inclusion. We took the office of DE&I. My first act um, was to elevate it from an associate VP to an executive officer position. That was the day one easy move. And then it was move that office from off campus to the heart of campus and and give it the kind of staff that it needs. It was give this person authority in each of the colleges, uh, a staff person, an academic that's looking at DE&I every day in the educational experience, not just in student affairs, but on the academic side. Uh, When Bert uh, had the sit-in, they came in with a list of demands. And the real answer to that was, 
Those are really good. Let's talk mm-hmm. about those. Um, uh, here is the bigger plan. Where do they fit? And you're going to see as we develop this strategic plan where those pieces that you've demanded are going to be in our strategic plan because they make sense. And um, it was a really honest process. And the answer was, all of these are good ideas, but here's the bigger plan, and we want to be a part of that with you. And I've met with them every couple of weeks you know, after the sit-in, and we still have meetings to this day, not every two weeks, but with frequency. About And the check-in is, of those lists they put together, where do they stand today? And um, are they being acted on? And I'm proud of us honoring the commitment, not just to that list of items that Bert had, but to this more comprehensive plan um, that allows for DE&I to have a real rooting. So, and, it, and it's not just the things everyone else is doing. It's not just the training, but training is important. Mandatory faculty and staff training is critical. It's not sufficient. Um, it's things like this class that I've talked about that others aren't doing, that we'd be on the leading edge of doing that helps us understand each other. Um, it's funding key areas like key cultural events that had to every year go try and raise the money to be able to fund Day of the Dead or you know, a stomp down and one of those events that are important culturally. And they had to go, you know, just say, look, there's going to be funding for those. Those are important and we get it. So we can work on the programming itself and not just trying to raise money for it. It's having um, understanding that what takes place in the classroom is as important as what takes place out of the classroom around a student's experience, especially for historically marginalized and currently marginalized communities. It's also recognizing how do you recruit students? How do you recruit faculty? What does the executive team look like, um, right? And so it needs to be. And so what we've done is we've said in our, in our plan for diversity, equity, inclusion, we've laid out objective goals that we're going to measure against. We measure against every six months to see how we're doing, whether it's recruiting students, whether it's representative uh, faculty and, and staff, whether it is do we have, you know, it's also putting in place our fundraising plan. I went in my first, you know, my first meeting with our fundraising team and I said, okay, can anybody tell me what our fundraising priorities are? And they were like, no, because there wasn't a clear list of fundraising priorities. Through our strategic plan, we've identified our number one fundraising priority. What do you think it is? It's need-based scholarships, Mm -hmm. right? It's access to a comprehensive research university education at a time where states and federal governments are decreasing the funding. And so how do we make it where students can get here regardless of economic circumstance, but based upon talent and drive? Um, And so when we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, it is not a separate conversation. I think for too long, it's been two things. It's been a separate conversation from the university, university strategic plan, and it's been a conversation that was reactionary to an incident. That's a recipe for failure, because guess what? Racist Issues happen every day in every element of society. So if your plan is simply reactionary, you're never going to achieve anything. The second thing is, even if you have a plan for DE&I, if you don't have it as part of your global strategic plan for the institution, and you don't fund it, and you don't measure against it, then you're not going to have a real impact. And so I think that's why we have a better chance. Um, Why we have a better chance than most, uh, and hopefully an excellent chance of... Mm -hmm creating an environment that simply isn't just society being society, which is increasingly divided, increasingly suspicious of each other, and hating each other. Right. And we have talked a lot about this plan, especially for faculty members, but also students make up a huge portion of the OU community. 
So how can students also work to be part of your plan, your bigger picture, and ensure this diversity inclusion? Students are at the core of this. I mean, this is why, um, you know, we only have one class that every student has to take right now. Um, And you can take it any time during your college career. Um, And it's in political science. Uh, I don't think that's allowing for full engagement of our students on this topic. Uh, And so we're taking some risk here. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to put in place this mandatory freshman three-hour class that centers on this. Um, And you have to take it during your freshman year. I wanted it to all be first semester, but it doesn't work. There's just not enough classrooms. And and so it's going to happen during your first year. For transfer students, it's going to happen during their first semester as a transfer Mm -hmm. student. But I think what this does is it recognizes that students, that for us to do our job for our students, our students have to leave here with these skills. And so we're making it the first required class that's mandatory in your first year of any class on, on, out of the entire campus. And I think this is a key starting point. So we're doing a lot in student affairs. We're doing a lot in the classroom. A, a big miss was not understanding how many of our classes um, weren't infusing DE&I and an understanding of that in their classes. And so all of these should focus in on the student. We think this class is a foundational component to help it be something that we all receive. But no, every aspect of this plan is about creating for our students the ability to be successful uh, in the world today um, and the ability to feel attached to the university like it's a place of belonging for them. And that can't happen when you feel marginalized. It can't. If, you, if you're at a place where you do not feel, where you feel like the other, if you're at a university of all places uh, and too many feel this way, that you are marginalized, you aren't as good as somebody else, that because of the color of your skin, right, because of your race, color, religion, sex, national origin, disability, that you don't feel like you're included, you can't flourish. You cannot prosper. Um, and, um, and so this isn't important to avoid more drama. Right. Uh, and I think a lot of folks look at it through that lens. How do you decrease the drama? That's, that didn't, we'd like to have less drama. Um, it's a byproduct of getting it right. And so you decrease drama by getting it foundationally right. And that means that from the moment the student is recruited by OU, not just arrives, that they um, feel that attachment and they feel they belong. Now, are we there today? No. Um, is this a path to get better at it and try without a doubt? And I think that's what we're doing right. Um, and we don't just, you know, we don't just say, oh, it's a place of true belonging today. No, it's a goal. Uh, it's not a reality. Um, and it's made more difficult by the fact that society is so divided. But that makes our opportunity to impact it just all the greater. And just really quick, I want to make sure that we're clear for our listeners. Can you explain a little bit what the DEI is? Oh, yeah. So uh, DEI is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And uh, the idea behind diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, is that um, those attributes um, uh, of race, you know, color, religion, uh, sex, national origin, disability, that those characteristics that have created marginalization, that have, that have made people feel less than the other, 
uh, are matters that we are honest about, that we understand the history behind those and therefore how people feel, um, and that we take steps to address it. So when we talk about uh, DE&I, uh, it stands for Diversity, Equity, Equity, and Inclusion, and it is meant to make sure that we're taking steps to address uh, those most likely attributes that create people to feel marginalized uh, in our society. And it really is race, color, religion, sex, national origin, disability. Those are among those characteristics that make people feel like they don't really belong. I know that things are kind of crazy right now. 2020 is not exactly what some of us expected it to be. <laughs> but what are you hoping to see from OU, from Oklahoma as a state, after this, what is our new normal, if you will? What is that going to look like for us? Yeah, I, I take a lot of, you know, encouragement from the students. Uh, it's, it's not what we expected. And one of the things that I've lived by, you know, learned by living long enough uh, is that this is what happens in life. Uh, it's not some straight path of success and it's never predictable. I know that when I came to OU, I had been so fortunate in my life, and I, I really hadn't experienced um, that many huge challenges. And, and this pandemic is a huge challenge, and the race issues we've discussed are a huge challenge. And I, I hope what, we, what we're learning from this, I hope what our students are learning and we're all learning from this is... Uh, that we to be successful, we have to be resilient. I have three kids, and they're in fifth grade and eighth grade and eleventh oh. grade. My man's taking the PSAT this morning, so I hope that goes well. Oh, wow! Um, <laughs> so you know what I want for them is not to go through a pain-free life. I, I don't think that's possible, and I don't think it actually makes you any better. What I want is for them to be able to take the talents they have and the opportunities they've had. And you know, I always talk about the meaning of life, right? Which is to love and if you can, make a difference. And all of our students that are here are in a really fortunate position. And so I hope what we see during, what we get out of this pandemic, which we wouldn't wish on anybody, is it's an example of a problem that's affected all of us. Every single one of us in society, regardless of who we are, has been impacted by this pandemic. It's a collective tragedy that we're having to experience, that we are experiencing in real time together. And my hope is, is that individually and collectively, we take it as an experience out of which we can become more resilient, that we can come out of it better, in a way, better understanding of the fragility of life, uh, the opportunities we have, the collective humanity, uh, and that we can care for each other in a different and better way. Uh, I, I think that's, and that we learn from it in a way that allows us to help ourselves and others. Uh, to me, those are the wishes that I certainly have out of this pandemic and out of every circumstance that faces us uh, that's negative. Well, I think you've answered all the questions that we have, and I'm sure we've taken up enough of your time, but mm -hmm. is there anything that um, we should have asked and didn't or anything else that we should know? Yeah, I'd just say thank you for doing this. Uh, it's, it's, there are plenty of excuses right now not to do hard, new, or interesting things. A pandemic can also provide an excuse, and it shouldn't. And by starting this new podcast, you all have taken a different path, and it's a, it's a podcast that is intended to help people 
listen to stories of others and learn from those experiences that have challenged people in a fundamental way. And so I just say thanks for doing it. And uh, I think we'll all be better for listening to it. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much for taking the time. Yeah, I appreciate no, it. I appreciate it. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Survive and Thrive. On the next podcast, we will speak with Krista Tippett, an award-winning journalist originally from Oklahoma and current NPR host. You can find us anywhere you listen to your podcasts by searching Survive in OKLA. We are your hosts, Carolee and Brooklyn. Join us every Wednesday for new episodes. Also participating in this podcast project are Kimberly Burke, our manager, Jesse Smith, researcher and writer, Sue Shan Fan, and Robert Leoiza, the social media coordinators, and Miranda Von Dale, our audio engineer. This podcast is presented by Gaylord News in collaboration with the Institute for the Study of Human Flourishing. <laughs>